thank you, whenever church discipline is enacted. We desire that would result in repentance and restoration. That is our hopeful end. And so we read in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. You who are spiritual. And so let us ask God that He would work in us that spirit which is needful for this gracious work. Let's pray and ask His help. Our Father in heaven, we do thank You that uh, we can see, even after time has passed, You work in Your amazing grace to bring the wanderer home the prodigal, the one who went to the far country, and he comes back and is welcomed with open arms and a fatted calf and a robe and a ring. We thank you for your grace to each of us. Though we are hell-deserving sinners, we thank you that Jesus came not to call the righteous, for there are none such, but sinners to repentance. We thank you for such amazing grace. And as we consider what your word has to say about this gracious work, we ask that you would help us, give us understanding. And even as Paul wrote to the Galatians, give us that spirit that we would be such as our spiritual to restore such a one. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to invite you again to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Because this is an occasion that took place in the church in Corinth, a church which had caused the Apostle Paul, and in a way was still causing the Apostle Paul, some grief and concern. Uh, and yet, God was at work there. And we see what he did in the life of this one who is mentioned here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed or swallowed up, by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes or devices. Now, Paul here introduces this matter of this one about whom he is writing. He just, he just says it this way, if any has caused sorrow, and as he says these words, you know, he didn't have to mention a name. He didn't have to say, well, you know who I'm talking about there, because they all knew as soon as he 
gives this kind of an introduction to this topic. If any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much. I'm not going to go into a lot of details and uh, prescribe all the, the ifs, ands, and buts. But he says, he has caused sorrow to you all, sufficient for such a one, for such a one. Now, as we look at this passage, I want us to look at, first of all, the awful sin committed, then secondly, the faithful discipline enacted, and thirdly, the blessed fruit born, and that's really what we're about here today, this hopeful goal, this blessed fruit, and then the loving restoration commanded. Now, um, commentators differ as to who this person is that's referred here, if any, or such a one. Um, and as was mentioned earlier, there are those who consider that, well, this is somebody else, but there's only one discipline case that we're familiar with in the church in Corinth, and that was the one mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and, and I, you know, commentators differ, pastors differ. I personally am of the opinion that it was that one mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. And since there's nobody else that we know about, we can at least take that as a sample. All right? So if you think it wasn't him, fine. But at least we know that there was such a one. And so we'll look at that case in particular because at least it serves as an example of what uh, this might have been uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5 and look at that awful sin that was committed there that is referred to uh, in this chapter and that may be the one referred to in 2 Corinthians 2 as well. And Paul writes of this one, he said it is actually reported, and so the household of Stephanus, Stephanus sent uh, some people to him and he heard about uh, what was going on there in Corinth. And so this was reported to him by some who came to him. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, although absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, and this phrase in italics is not in the original, I'll leave it out. Uh, this is what he's prescribing or advising. To deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so we see this awful sin committed there in the church in Corinth that this man has uh, his father's wife. Now, that's not his mother. Otherwise, he would have said your mother, his father's wife. This is his stepmother. And this man, and this is an, an incense of a sort that he has said, uh, an incest rather of a sort that even Gentiles would say, no, 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 you can't do that. It's so obviously immoral and wrong that even the Gentiles wouldn't name such a thing. And so, you know, sadly, we see the reality of sin depicted in Scripture. 
Some people think, well, this is awful. You shouldn't even talk about these things. But this is reality. This happens. It happened with uh, Reuben and his, his father Jacob's maid, Bilhah. It happened with Absalom and his father David's concubines. Uh, these things happened, and they still happen, sadly. Sin is ugly. Sin is wretched. Sin is despicable. Uh, a word that's not really so common these days, but it's a good word. It is vile. And the Bible doesn't mince words. The Bible doesn't sweep it under the rug and say, well, we can't mention that. The Bible talks about these realities in such a way that is delicate. It doesn't go into detail. It doesn't titillate us with uh, enticing our sinful lust to imagine things. But it tells us of reality. This is a, an awful, despicable, vile sin which one of the members of the church there in Corinth had committed. But the sad thing about this is even though this is so vile, despicable, unimaginable in a sense, Gentiles would even call it such, the church in Corinth not only tolerated it, but almost boasted about it. It says, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Now, this is sadly what we see in churches today. You know, we're open and affirming. Love is love. Oh, you love your father's wife? Oh, that's wonderful. Open and affirming. We see this calling abominable sins as positive and we are being affirmed by some so-called churches in our day. And that's what happened in Corinth. And not to say that this church in Corinth was an apostate church, but they had some things awfully wrong. And they affirmed <laughs> this man in his sin. You have not mourned, but rather you become arrogant. It's like they're saying, oh, you, 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 just as long as there's love, you love her, and we love you, and Jesus taught us to love, Jesus taught us to love sinners, right? Right. Wrong, we don't tolerate. We read earlier in Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And this man was not walking worthy. He was walking in such a manner that was despicable. So there's this sin committed. And again, if it was uh, not the one referred to in 2 Corinthians 2, at least it's a sample of what kind of thing could have been referred to, and, and I'm of the opinion it was, but be that as it may. Now, what did the church do? Well, the Apostle Paul here tells them what they should do. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, to deliver such a one to Satan. Now, that sounds awfully extreme. Deliver him to Satan? You're going to give this man to the hands of the devil? Well, let's put things in context. There are two kingdoms here in this world. And the one is the kingdom of light, and the other is the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of Christ, and there's the kingdom of Satan. 
The whole world, John writes, lies in the hands of the evil one. That's, God's, that, that's the devil's kingdom. And when Paul here says, I've decided, I've determined, I want, this is my advice, this is my command to you, this is what ought to be done, you need to deliver this one back to the kingdom where he came from. Because that's what he's acting like, that's how he's living. He's not living worthy, he's living like a child of the devil. And so what you need to do is send him back. Send him back to that kingdom of darkness the kingdom in which he's living. And that becomes clear later in the chapter where he says in verse 11, I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolatry, idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I, have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So there's the interpretation, if you will, of what he says to deliver such a one to Satan. Remove him from yourselves, from the kingdom of Jesus, and give him back where he's acting like he never left, the kingdom of Satan. And so that's Paul's recommendation to the church. That's what he tells them they ought to do. Now, did they do it? Well, you go, and again, taking 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as a carrying on as a continuation or as the ending of such an event, we find that they obeyed. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 2, sufficient for such a one, again, not mentioning names, and by the way, Paul's not afraid to mention names. I urge you, Odia, and they urged Syntyche to get along in the Lord. Uh, if, if you were there as Euodia or Syntyche when that letter was read, I imagine uh, being a redhead, I would have been matching the color of my hair. But um, he doesn't do that with this man. He doesn't mention names. He just says, such a one, sufficient for such a one, is the punishment which was, and the, it's literally, which was of the majority. In other words, for a matter of church discipline to be effective, it has to be the majority. And, and that's, by the way, not like 51 out of 100. That's an overwhelming majority. It's, it's that everybody sees it, and that's what you ought to do, and they did it. Well, it was done. It was done. The church, whereas back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they seemed reluctant. They seemed to say, well, you know, we love everybody and we're going to accept everybody. And now they say, no, no, we, we have to maintain as one of the marks of the church of Jesus Christ that we have purity of the church. We preserve the integrity of the church. We preserve the name of our Savior who is glorious and holy. And we don't want his name to be dragged in the mud by the Gentiles who look on and see what we're doing. We want him to be glorified. And we want, remember the case of discipline in the early church in Acts, where you have, uh, I'm trying to get these names right, Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit. They said, oh yeah, yeah, we're going to sell this lot and we're going to give the whole money to the church. You know, you sell a lot for, say, 100000 
you're not going to give, you know, 50,000 to the church. They probably gave at least 90,000 to the church and kept 10. Oh, we're going to give the amount. Whatever amount they kept, not like a huge amount, or everybody would have known, you sold it for that? That's dumb. For a little amount of money, they lied to the Holy Spirit. And they were dis. What was the effect of that? All the more people were added to the church. Church discipline, although they were, the people were in fear, but they were respecting that church. It does good for the church of Jesus Christ. And so the church here now in Corinth is obedient. They deliver this one to Satan's kingdom. He is removed from their midst in obedience to the word of the apostle, to the word of Christ. In obedience to Christ for the sake of the glory of his name, they did this deed. Now, again, in the world these days, people say, oh, what a harsh church. Your church is so judgmental. I don't know if you've heard that kind of thing. Discipline. Oh, that's terrible. I grew up in a church that never exercised discipline. Even when the church secretary was seeing another man who was married, and the church, the church secretary was a widow. And the pastor swept it under the rug. No discipline. But it was not right. And to come then to Trinity where discipline was exercised, they said, this is how it ought to be. This is right. And the point is, it's not okay to live in sin. Now, now please listen to me, all, all who are here this morning. Now, there are some folks here in, in Flemington I don't know so well. I'm glad you all are here because... I've been coming to this church to preach off and on for 30 years, 40 years. And so some of y'all are new. But church discipline is a good thing. If someone lives in sin, whether it's this abominable sin of 1 Corinthians 5, or whether it's, you know, a man is caught embezzling money from his company, or he just lies about stuff like giving to the church, uh, or he cheats on his wife, or he is a drunkard, or a homosexual, or a drug addict, the church has to take action. Why? Because of the name of Christ. Because of the good of the rest of the members, that they don't think sin is okay. And for the people in the world, that they'll see that the gospel makes a difference. And all the more we read in the book of Acts, we're added to the church. Why? Because they saw these people are for real. We need to do this. It is not okay to live in sin. So they obeyed. The church came to its senses. They saw that, yeah, we weren't acting right in this situation by tolerating this man's sin. They acted biblically. They enacted the punishment. And it was punishment because sin... We don't pat it on the back. We don't chuck it on the chin. We don't affirm it. Sin deserves punishment. And that's what they did. But what was the fruit of it then? Well, the fruit of it is evident here. 
that the man came to repentance. Notice verse 7, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed, or the, the word could be translated swallowed up, by excessive sorrow. The man had sorrow. And, and we read of this godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Whether this was the case referred to in chapter 7 or not, I don't know. But uh, he speaks of causing them sorrow, the whole church, not just one man, by his previous letter. And he writes here in verse 8 of chapter 7, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. And when he says, I regret it, but I didn't regret it, well, he's, you know, you don't like making people sorrowful. I hope you don't. <laughs> you know, we're not sadists and we're not trying to make people feel bad. That's not what we're about. That's why Paul says, I, I regret it, but I don't regret it. He's got these mingled feelings about it. But then he goes on to say, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. And so he says, there's sorrow. You know, there's good sorrow and bad sorrow. Uh, but when there's sin that leads to sorrow, not a sorrow of, uh, well, the consequences of that didn't turn out like I wanted, but the sorrow of, I sinned against God. I have done evil, as we read about earlier in Micah. I have sinned against a holy God. I deserve His wrath. I am not worthy. As even the prodigal son, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Sorrow because of sin and the recognition of sin. This is a good sorrow. Sorrow that brings about repentance without regret. Repentance, oh yeah, you regret the sin, but you don't regret repenting. You don't say, well, you know, this is so shameful. I don't, I don't ever want to go through this. I, no, 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 no. Repentance. It says, I need to do whatever I need to do to make right the wrong. And you see, that's what he says here, this vindication. He talks about vindication. Vindicating the wrong. Not by denying it, not by covering it up, not by saying, well, it wasn't really so bad. That's not the vindication he's talking about. The vindication he's talking about is the vindication of saying, I want to make it right by confessing, by turning from the sin. That's how he's vindicating himself. And if I'm talking to anybody here, you're covering something up. And you say, well, I don't want, I want, to, don't want to mention this because it's so shameful. You know, the path to 
having that shame lifted is not the path of covering up. It's the path of confession. It's the path of making it right. It's the path of coming out and saying, I, I'm a sinner. You think of that poor man in the temple, that tax collector. And there's the Pharisee on one hand who says, I thank you, God, I'm not like other people. I don't have anything to hide, and if I did, I'm not going to tell you about it. Uh, and then there's the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Nothing hiding, not covering up. Who received mercy? Who went down to his house justified? The publican and not the Pharisee. And so, dear friends, the path to forgiveness is not the path of cover-up. It's the path of confession. I come, Lord, here I am, just as I am, without one plea. I'm not saying I'm a good person. My only plea would be the blood of Jesus. And that plea is accepted. And so here this man comes he is repenting of his sin. And then what was the result? Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Initially, it seems that the people didn't want to believe it. And they're there with their hands on their hips saying, What? You want us to swallow that? After what you did? That's what it seems. We read here. On the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Not the sorrow that leads to repentance that's not to be regretted, but over much sorrow. I've repented, and they won't, they won't receive me. I've repented, and they're still shunning me. I'll not even eat with such a one, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. And they're still not eating with me. They're still not welcoming me. They're still not loving me. And Paul writes to them, okay, enough already. You have done what was right in exercising discipline. Now the man has come to repentance. He has come to acknowledge his sin in sorrow and grief and shame. It's enough already. It's enough already. Don't overwhelm him. Don't swallow him up. Now forgive him and comfort him. And so the members were adding pain to his sorrow. The members, in a sense, were saying to him, you're so bad, there's no hope for you. You know whose work that is? That's the devil's work. Because... And I've counseled people who have fallen into grievous sin as a pastor. And here's my question to them when they come to me and say, I don't believe God would accept me. I say, this is my question. Who wants to keep you from Christ? God or the devil? The answer's pretty obvious, isn't it? What does Jesus say? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Rest from the guilt of your sin and the misery of your sin. Come to me. Satan says, oh, look at you. Look what you've done. How are 
you're going to go back to God after what you did. And you didn't just do it once. You, you look at you. You're a hopeless case. That's the devil's work. And so these people, in a sense, initially, they were helping the devil by saying, oh, it's no big deal. Now on, they've gone the other way. They've swung with the pendulum. And they're saying, you're so bad, there's no hope. Which is also the devil's work. They were adding pain to a sorrow. The tax collectors heard Jesus gladly. And the Pharisees are saying, what are you doing with them? <laughs> and Jesus welcomed them, not to continue in their sin, but to turn from their sin. And so now he's in danger of being swallowed up. And there is such a thing, brethren, hear me, there's such a thing as too much sorrow. It's right to feel sorrow when you sin. It's wrong to glibly say, well, anyway, I'm forgiven, so no, no big deal. That's wrong. But to say there's no hope, that's also wrong. Too much sorrow. There can be such a thing as too much sorrow. That's what Paul is saying here. Lest somehow be, be overwhelmed, swallowed up by too much sorrow. And so, I don't know what you've done. You know, kids, sometimes we feel awful, don't we? I say we. Uh, you know, I, I cheated, I took my, I took money, I took candy from the candy jar. Mm. Too much sorrow. Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come. I'm not worthy. Jesus says, come. Again, words we don't often use these days. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so, this was the situation. Paul told them now to receive him. He's repented. Receive him. And so what happened? And we come to the last point then, the loving restoration that was commanded. Paul's evaluation of the case was this. He sees he's got these reports coming from Corinth. And he says, okay, it's enough already. He's repented. He has been over, he's even being overwhelmed, swallowed up with sorrow. Now forgive and comfort him. Sufficient is the punishment. You have disciplined him. You removed him from your midst. You returned him to the kingdom of Satan. And now he's come back and he's repenting. What should you do now? Reaffirm your love for him. Forgive him, comfort him. And so here, here are the commands. First of all, forgive. What are we to do when your brother sins against you? And you remember Peter's question to Jesus, what, what, what do I do if, if my brother sin and he comes to me and repents? Do I, how many times do I forgive him? Maybe, and I tend to think this was the case, that Peter thought he was being very generous and he said, up to seven times? Okay, I'll go that, I'll really go the extra mile, I'll do seven times. What was Jesus' response? Seventy times seven. 
Now, does that mean you get out your, you know, your little counter and your, uh, you get an app in your phone and, and it says, okay, how many times of forgiveness have I given this brother? And you, you get it up there and you've got, okay, 480, you got 10 more, 485, 6, you're, in, you're on thin ice, 490, that's it. Is that what Jesus was implying? Of course not. I mean, who's going to keep track of 490 forgivenesses? Jesus is saying, he, for, he repents, you forgive him. And this is what Paul is saying. This man has repented. He's come back to you. It's not just like, oh, no, okay, I'm so, sorry, you know. I said sorry. And they expect a little pat on the back. But genuine repentance. Turning from the sin with sorrow. Conviction, confession, change. The three C's of repentance. And this is what the man was doing. And Jesus, and Jesus and Paul says, repent, he repented, you forgive him. Repentance, for, he doesn't say, okay, <clears throat> you tell the guy, or you have to say 50 Hail Marys, 20 Our Fathers, and then I'll forgive you. Or like the dog we had who liked to dig holes, you know, back in the Philippines, and we say, oh, well, so I did this. I know maybe the dog whisperers will, will bite my head off. But, you know, you put his head in the mud, and you say, you, but you don't you dig holes, you know? Is that what we're going to do to our brother? All right, you did it. I'm going to put your head there and shovel dirt on your head. No. You don't, that's not what he says. He says, he repented, you forgive him. And not only you forgive him, you comfort him. Comfort him. Now, this is not affirming his sin. It's not saying, well, it's okay. It's not saying, oh, love is love, and, you know, we, we just, we'd love you no matter what you did. It's, now he's repented. You comfort. You know, how do we comfort somebody who sinned? What's the comfort that we give? The comfort of Scripture. The comfort of the gospel. There's forgiveness with him, Psalm 130, that he might be feared. Not that there's forgiveness with him so you can go on and sin. There's forgiveness with him that he might be feared and loved and served. And you can rejoice. What's the psalm that we read earlier? How blessed is the man whose nose is rubbed in the hole. <laughs> no, whose sin is forgiven. That's the comfort that we give to the sinner. How blessed is the man. How genuinely happy. My sin's forgiven. My sin, as we sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's the comfort that we give to the returning sinner. And then re reaffirm your love for him. Not run him down, not gossip about him, not to, not to have animosity and hatred, not to keep him aloof, but to love him. Reaffirm your love for him. The dividing wall is broken down by the blood of Christ. You see, we need to beware of Satan's devices, verse 11 in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And again, as I said, one of his schemes is 
to make us overwhelmed by too much sorrow. That's one of them. Now, he has many schemes. One of his schemes is to say sin's no big deal. Another scheme is to say sin's too big a big deal, you have no hope. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices when it comes to the returning sinner. To cause over much swallow, uh, sorrow that will swallow you up. And so, this is what the passage says. This is what we're to do. These are the directions that the Apostle Paul gives in the case of this uh, such a one that he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, what do, I, what do we say in, appli in application as we sum things up here? Well, we've seen the awful sin. We've seen also in this passage uh, the repentance, we've seen the blessed fruit, we've seen the discipline, we've seen the blessed fruit of repentance, and we've seen the loving restoration. Now, what's the application? Well, first of all, and this was mentioned in the earlier adult Bible class, be thankful for a church that practices loving, gracious, obedient discipline. I mentioned I grew up in a church, actually churches, where this was never heard of. And probably if it was heard of, it would have been condemned as unloving and, and hateful and, and cruel and harsh. But it's loving. Discipline is loving because when we exercise this towards an erring man, woman, member, we cast him out, remove such a one. This is an act of love. Because it's telling the brother or sister, it's not okay what you did. Because if we tell them it's okay, they'll continue. And this man was continuing back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He was still living with his stepmother. He was still in her arms. And they were saying, we love you anyway. No, the loving thing is to say it's not okay. And we want you to get right. We want you to come back. We want you to turn from the sin and turn to the Savior. It is a blessed thing to be in a church where there's rebuke, correction, and encouragement to walk in the truth, to walk worthy. But I would say, brethren, excel still more. Keep up the good work. As we heard, that's one of the marks of the church. And if you look in the book of Revelation, when Jesus threatened to remove a lampstand from a church, one of the reasons for that was they tolerated this woman Jezebel. They didn't act, enact uh, discipline there in the church in Thyatira. I have this against you, he says in chapter 2 and verse 20, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. In other words, it's not like, boom, you're out. There's a process. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. And so... This is a mark of the church there in Revelation as well. Biblical, godly, loving, caring, responsible church discipline. Excel still more. Keep it up. It costs. You say, oh, the church is going to lose members if we do this. We're small enough as it is. 
Remember in the book of Acts? All the more were added. <laughs> Be faithful. Continue. Beware of Satan's devices. Satan loves to destroy churches. And he can even use Christians to destroy churches. You know that? If you don't, if you don't know that, it's, it's, it may be a rude awakening when it happens, but it happens. And the, if we recognize this, that Satan can even use Christians to destroy churches, you won't be surprised or shocked if it happens. But this brother, he's you know, going around behind the pastor whispering and spreading rumors and, and gathering uh, people to himself. It happens. But Paul says to us, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. Don't be party to that. Don't go along with it. Don't buy it. We heard earlier about uh, some scheme of uh, trying to take advantage of old people. It's not just old people who get taken advantage of. Uh, don't be taken advantage of by anybody who wants to sow discord in the church. Satan's devices. Anybody who wants to destroy the unity of the church, its peace, its harmony, its testimony, its outreach, is doing the devil's work. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And remember in Corinth, there were those who were uh, being party to Satan's devices and sowing discord. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. I was reading a book just this past week where the writer took the point of view that these who were of Christ were perhaps the worst bunch, <laughs> uh, who were sowing even more discord. Well, we're the holy ones. <clears throat> But we read in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verse 16. <clears throat> Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. And we could go on, but the point here is this. What's God's temple? Y'all are the temple. This house, this building made of living stones, we read in 1 Peter chapter 2. God dwells here by His Spirit. And to destroy the church of Christ is serious business. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. One of those devices is to give over much sorrow. One of the devices is to sow discord. One of the devices is to say sin doesn't matter. There are many, many devices. Don't be party to Satan's devices. But I want to close with this word. We saw here in... 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that there was a case of sin in the church. And, you know, the world outside looks on, and, and on one hand they say, well, these Christians, you know, they think they're better than everybody else. And then on the other hand, when sin takes place in the church, 
They say, oh, I told you, they're all, it's just all the same. They're just the same as us. It doesn't, you know, it's all the same. They're just like us. There's no difference. Christianity, it's just a philosophy. It's just a, you know, it's a past religion. It's empty. But you see, dear friend, it's not so. Because when you come to Christ, he changes you. There's something that happens, and it's supernatural. He takes someone who loves the world, loves sin, loves money, loves pleasure, and takes him and flips him around. So he loves God. He loves righteousness. He loves God's people. He loves the Savior. And he's not living for this world. And you can sit in front of his face, a pile of money, and say, you just come and you, you can have it all. He said, I'd rather have Christ. What makes somebody like that? It's the amazing grace of God. And you see, when a church enacts discipline, and when a church rescinds discipline and shows this is what we're about, is this amazing grace that takes a sinner and changes him wonderfully. Powerfully, amazingly. And people see it and they say, what makes you tick? What's going on here? God is in this place. And dear friend, if you don't know Christ today, he can take you and flip you around. Instead of loving money and loving pleasure, which is going to kill you. It's not, it doesn't work. And he can make you a new creature. And this is what you need. And you know it. He takes sinners. He takes those who love the world. And he makes them new. Instead of loving self and loving pleasure, they love Christ and they love people. They're different. That's what has happened to many here. And he can do it for you. Let's pray. And as we pray, I do want to just read a couple of verses before we pray. And if I find them here, Romans chapter 15. Greet the church, oh, 15, excuse me. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's come to him and pray. Father, we thank you that you give perseverance, you give encouragement, you give hope, you give unity. And you give us that heart that with one voice we would glorify you. Why you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You have taken us from the love of sin and self and pleasure and put in our hearts a new song, a song of love and praise to you, the living God, and love to our fellow creatures in their need and want. And so we ask that as this church now comes 
in a meeting later on, that you would grant that spirit, grant that love, that we would obey your word and your will in the case at hand. And we pray for those who do not yet know the Savior, that even as took place in the book of Acts in the early church, that when there was a case in which you enacted discipline, that all the more were added to the church. May the testimony of this church shine so brightly here in Flemington and in the surrounding area that you would draw many to the Savior through the sweet savor of the testimony of each one. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.